3: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, deadlines can trigger a range of reactions. For some, they generate stress, for others, they create structure, and still others seem to be able to shrug them off as mere suggestions. This hour, we explore what shapes our attitudes toward deadlines, and we want to hear from you, how you tackle them, and what stories you have about making or missing deadlines. Just don't wait until the last minute to tell us. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Deadlines. They're a fact of life, but we humans have complicated relationships with them. We need them, fear them resent them, even ignore them sometimes. This hour, inspired by a recent New Yorker piece titled What Deadlines Do to Lifetimes, we explore what these conflicting emotions are all about. And we wanna hear from you. How do you tend to react to deadlines? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email us forum at kqed.org Or you can post on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And don't forget, you have until the end of the hour. Let me tell you who is joining me for the hour. Christopher Cox is with us, a journalist and author of The Deadline Effect. How to work like it's the last minute before the last minute. Christopher Cox, welcome to Forum.
4: Thank you, Mina. Glad to be with you.
3: So you are a big believer in the power of deadlines. I mean, you wrote a whole book about it. So why, what are some examples of how you have seen them work as powerful motivators?
4: Well, I started uh, working on the book while I was doing my day job, which is being a magazine editor. I started my career um, at Harper's Magazine and then I went went to GQ and um, I saw firsthand uh, how effective deadlines were, not just letting people get things done, but also get works of art done you know there there are articles and essays that I worked on at both those magazines that had the highest standards of creativity Mm -hmm. um, but they were they were performed on deadline you know I I worked with actual deadline poets Ben Lerner wrote a poem on deadline for me when I was at Harper's um, and I was just sort of intrigued at how uh, we one could harness a deadline and still remain creative like the combination of artistic endeavors and being productive seemed uh, tantalizing to me.
3: Yeah, so a deadline is not the enemy of creativity as we often believe.
4: Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I think the enemy of creativity is what comes before the deadline. It's the procrastination. It's the, the part where you're not you know, in a creative mode and uh, feeling anxiety and, and suffering from it.
3: And you also found that the shorter the deadline the better that when one is setting deadlines, we should push for the shortest realistic deadline possible. What makes you say that?
4: That came both from uh, experiments I ran myself as an editor, um, just sort of trying out different lengths of deadlines with different writers. Uh, And then also there's some psychological experiments and social science experiments that um, have shown the same effect. And the example I cite in the book, it's um, with one writer who I think of as, as a very fine writer, but was always pathologically tardy. He could be months, if not years, <laughs> late on pieces. Wow! Um, and the, the problem with him got so acute that I just one day uh, threw up my hands a bit and gave him the shortest deadline I could possibly imagine. Um, a piece that I might have normally given him a month to write, I gave him five days to write. And I think that he and I would both agree that experience is actually one of our best experiences, because he didn't have time to worry about writing the piece. He just got down to writing it. And at the end of the day, uh, it was turned in more or less on time and it was as good as anything else he's written.
3: Wow. Can you also tell the story about what a U.S. census worker discovered about deadlines?
4: Yeah, that was a, that was um, one of the first uh, bits of evidence I read about this the use, usefulness of shorter deadlines. Uh, there was a census worker and she tried an experiment where she basically, basically gave one group of people who received the census in the mail uh, a, one week less to finish it. So, you know, two batches of, of the postal questionnaire for the census went out. One group had the normal deadline, the other had one week less. And the, the group that had less time to finish the questionnaire actually had a higher response rate and the data uh, was more thorough. They filled out more of the questionnaire.
3: Wow. So I want to, again, remind listeners that if you want to share how you react to deadlines, you can at 866-733-6786. But I'd also love to know what stories you have about making or missing them. Again, 866-733-6786. And you can also email them to forum at kqbd.org. I want to bring Dr. Laura Park into the conversation, associate professor at the Department of Psychology at the State University of New York at Buffalo. Dr. Park, thanks for joining us. For having me so christopher is describing just how effective deadlines can be but why do they trigger such a range of often conflicting emotions from inspiration to get things done as it sounds like it did for his uh colleague john to like total dread um i'm really curious about what is tied up with all that and and maybe we can start with dread why do so many of us wait to the last minute to hit our deadlines?
5: So that's a great question. I I think there's a lot of different ways to approach this question. And one of the things, if you look at it from sort of a bird's eye, broader perspective is that we're living in a time and in a society and a culture where we're getting these two competing messages on the one hand, you know, as the New Yorker article talked about this deadline industrial complex, we have this push to always show how busy we are. In mm-hmm. fact, research shows that displays of busyness are viewed as a status symbol, that it's the new way of showing that we have a scarcity of time and therefore we're in high demand. So, in that sphere, we're pushing ourselves to work and to be productive and to, you know, contribute in our workplace. But on the other hand, we also have these messages of stop and smell the roses and chill out, relax, don't let life pass you by. And so I find procrastination to be this interesting juxtaposition between these two messages. And ultimately, procrastination is self-defeating. People engage in this behavior, knowing that it's not really adaptive for them in the long run. And The reason why we experience and engage in this behavior is often because we're trying to regulate our negative moods or emotions. Um, We might have doubts or insecurities about our abilities. We might just feel frustrated or like you said, the word dread. We just dread aspects of the task because it's difficult or confusing or just overwhelming. And so I think there's different approaches to tackle this question of procrastination at a societal level but also in terms of what, you know, Chris was talking about in terms of the tasks, but also in terms of the individual self, how can we hmm. help individuals at the level of motivation as well as the task, as well as the broader culture and society to try to overcome this issue. Issue.
3: Wow. That's a lot. No wonder we progressed today.
5: <laughs> but if I could just
3: unpack a couple of the things that you mentioned. So for example, Um, How do our doubts and insecurities about our abilities play into procrastination?
5: So there's uh, research that I think is relevant, although there's not research that I, I know of that have looked specifically at procrastination related to this idea. But my guess would be that when people have these very fixed mindsets, these beliefs that intelligence is something that you have or you don't, I would bet that people who have those kinds of belief might be more likely to procrastinate because they worry that if I try this thing and I fail, that would mean that I'm not, I don't have the ability to do well in this area. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is probably one of the biggest enemies of, of getting goals accomplished and making progress is that you have this belief that your ability in this, you know, the ability to write poetry or or write something creative is something that you have or you don't and there's actually research showing that for instance um there's associations that people have between certain fields and stereotypes about brilliance that you have to be sort of innately talented or a genius to do well in certain fields versus others sounds, and that yeah yeah and that can dissuade um for example women to pursue stem fields if they ha- if there's these beliefs about certain fields having these innate um, fixed mindsets about intelligence.
3: It's interesting. It sounds like what you're talking about is, well, the very last thing you were talking about is closely tied to imposter syndrome. And Mm -hmm. then what you were talking about earlier sounds a lot like perfectionism.
5: Yes. Perfectionism is related to procrastination. Um, a lot of other individual differences that have been studied in, in personality and social psychology links it to those types of, um, personality variables and so it's very hard to change people's personality so it's hard to for example tell somebody who has low self-esteem you know just just tell yourself you're a good person and actually research shows that if you tell low self-esteem people to you know talk in front of a mirror saying I'm lovable people like me and say these positive self-statements it actually backfires it actually makes them feel worse Whereas for people with high self-esteem, it's consistent with how they see themselves, and so it, it boosts their self-esteem, but for low self-esteem people, it doesn't work. So what that suggests is that some of our attempts to motivate people is not a one-size-fits-all. You can't just tell somebody, come on, just do it, cheer up, or, you know, you can do it. For some people, that's that's not going to be effective.
3: Um- the other thing that I was interested in hearing more about was you talked about how procrastination is linked to how much we connect with our future selves. Can you explain what you mean by that?
5: Yeah. So Hal Hirschfield at UCLA has done a lot of great research related to future selves. And what he finds is that the more people feel similar and can uh, visualize and identify their future future self and connect it with their current self, they're more likely to make sacrifices and delay their current gratification to make plans for the long run. Um, And so even though um, their work hasn't looked specifically at procrastination, I think you can see the potential connections here that if you have a clear sense of your future self and you see a lot of overlap between your current self and your future self. Now, what does that mean exactly? Because it's that's a very abstract way of, of talking about things. He's actually done studies where people are in a virtual reality environment and they have a picture taken of their face and it gets age progressed like 40 years into the future. And in this virtual world, you look in a mirror and you see yourself age progressed and people who... Have that glimpse into their future self are more likely to do things like invest in a hypothetical savings account. So the more you see yourself as your future self, um, and there's reminders that you can, you know, do to, to remind yourself of that, you might engage in more behaviors that benefit the future self in the long run.
3: We're talking with Dr. Laura Park, associate professor at the Department of Psychology at the State University of New York at Buffalo. Christopher Cox is with us, author of The Deadline Effect, How to Work Like It's the Last Minute Before the Last Minute. So you guessed it, we're talking about deadlines and why they conjure such a range of reactions, emotions, and so on. If if you want to join the conversation, please do so by calling 866-733-6786 or emailing us forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. welcome back to forum i'm mina kim deadlines punctuate our lives but we have complicated and conflicting relationships with them and right now we're talking about the psychology that often shapes our reactions and attitudes toward deadlines with dr laura park associate professor at the department of psychology state university of new york at buffalo and christopher cox journalist and author of the deadline effect how to work like it's the last minute and if you want to share how you tend to react to deadlines or if you have questions about deadlines or how to meet them, or want to share stories about making or missing them, you can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email them to forum at kqed.org or post them on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Marilee writes, let's face it, we really never have the time to finish what we really don't want to do. (laughs) How much does that play A big role in missing deadlines, Christopher Cox, just that you really don't want to do what the deadline is requiring.
4: Yeah. I mean, certainly like if a a task is unpleasant, um, then we are motivated to put it off. And that's that's where where procrastination comes from. Um, But actually uh, one of the interesting things I read in some of the psychological and social science literature, and I'm, I'm sure Dr. Park has, has heard of this as well, is that we also procrastinate enjoyable experiences. This has something to do with that future self that she was talking about. You know, we tend to undervalue how much a reward is, you know, how much we'll want that reward if it's too far in the future. So one experiment I read about was uh, they offered a free coupon for cake to two groups of people. Uh and uh, one of the coupons had an expiration date of three weeks, and the other had an expiration date of two months. And the people who had the the shorter deadline, even though they had less time to go get their cake, were much more likely to go get that cake—five uh, times as likely as the group with the longer deadline—to go get something that you know no one should be procrastinating eating cake, and yet people <laughs> still were. It,
3: it also sort of underscores the point you're making about the shorter the deadline, uh, the better. Dr. Park, one of the other things that you were talking about was that if a task is um, confusing or it feels like something that you don't quite know enough about, that that's also another reason that people do not or hit their deadlines or they might dread their deadlines. That seems to have like a fairly simple solution, though, doesn't it? Like learning more about what it is.
5: (laughs) You would would think it's a simple solution and yet, you know, many, many people still procrastinate. And so I think the deeper question or issue related to um, this problem of procrastination is that, you know, yes, if a task is difficult or it's confusing or frustrating, you would want to clarify what needs to get done. But often people um, don't do that. And the reason why could be they are doubtful about their abilities what you said before about imposter feelings um, asking for help is a bit of a risk you you worry that you might come across as being incompetent huh. or not capable and so sometimes for these self-presentational reasons people will procrastinate or just keep avoiding some tasks because confronting the task is actually confronting those insecurities that you might have about maybe I don't have the ability. What are people going to think of me if I ask that? I don't understand something. But in fact, research shows um, from Harvard Business School that by Alison Woodbrooks that if you share both your failures and your successes, you're more motivating to people and you inspire others more than just talking about your successes. And another way to uh motivate yourself is to share your struggles or obstacles that you're facing. So by reaching out and asking for advice or help, you actually not only will get the help that you need, but in turn, you could end up inspiring other people as well, who might also be worried about looking incompetent when asking the same kind of question. Hmm. Let me go to caller
3: Elise in Sacramento. Hi, Elise.
6: Hi. Hi, what would Um, you like to share? I just wanted to to jump in and say um, I was really excited to hear you talking about this topic um, as a woman who has ADHD um, and the issue of kind of being neurotypical versus being neurodiverse when thinking about deadlines and how you approach deadlines. Because for me specifically, um, I really didn't uh, come to terms with the fact that I had ADHD until about a year ago. Um, And I'm almost 30. And so it took quite a while and it's shed a lot of light on um, why my life has gone the way it's gone and some of the struggles that I've always had. And like for me, I absolutely have to have a deadline or else I won't ever do anything ever. And it's just been like a big journey to learn about how executive function, like people with ADHD that struggle with executive function, um, how that you know, impact your attitude towards deadlines and towards procrastination. So I guess I'm wondering if if either of the guests would comment on that, um, especially, you know, the executive function thing. And uh, one of the executive functions is being able to see yourself in the future. And I really struggle with being able to do that, which impacts procrastination quite a bit.
3: Elise, thanks. And I just want to share, Jennifer, who writes, serial procrastination is what led me to seek a diagnosis for ADHD. It still plagues my life, but I have resources to help with it now. Laura Park, any reaction to what Elise was saying?
5: Yeah, so it's interesting. Thanks, Elise, for for calling in. What you were talking about with ADHD and some of the the... Uh, problems with executive functioning, research also has shown that there's some connections between procrastination and problems with um, executive functions in terms of things like task monitoring, self-monitoring, task switching, um, planning and organizing and things like that. So one of the strategies that people have, have looked into and that seems to be effective is is removing obstacles to your goal progress, but another way uh, of thinking about that idea is what's called pre-commitment in the psychological literature, where you basically pre-commit in advance to having your future self do something so that your future self can't get out of it. So, for example, in related to health and fitness, for instance, um, uh, this this happened with um, my husband who loves Doritos, uh, as most people will know. And so we just, anytime I went to the store, I would not buy Doritos. So just not having it in the house um, prevents you from being tempted to engage in that behavior. Um, planning to meet up with somebody at the gym or, or some outdoor place to go walking or running with them, sets up an accountability, maybe setting up a withdrawal from your paycheck every month that automatically goes into a savings or investment account, or perhaps leaving your work, um, leaving your uh, notes or laptop at, at the office so that you aren't tempted to use it when you go back home if you want to separate work and home life a little bit more. So hmm. there's a lot of strategies concretely that people can do to pre-commit to engaging in a course of action that they would ideally like to engage in by removing that temptation from the, the future self indulging yes. in that.
3: Well, let me go next to caller Sanjay in Fremont. Hi, Sanjay.
1: Hi, uh, good morning. Uh, I had a comment. I uh, have had you know a lot of to-do lists about stuff I do. Oh. And I recently took a meditation course um, and uh, and the, one of the tenets of the medication course also is to be in the present, and the present is inevitable. And as part of that, I discovered that I used to be totally anxious with my to-do list in my head. I got to do this next, this next, this next, and that uh, after doing this, I realized, you know, I can have a to-do list and not be anxious about it. Now, this has not helped me in, in um, not procrastinating. But what he's helped me is to not be anxious about my list of things to do.
3: I like that. I don't know if you have a
1: comment on that.
3: Well, I'm glad you found that sort of middle space. Any thoughts on that, um, Chris Cox, in terms of... Because I know you talk about kind of like reframing the way we view our to-do lists or our deadlines.
4: Yeah, I mean, like, in the book, basically, I sort of assumed that people's psychologies are going to be different. Some people will be anxious about deadlines. Some people will be very good at, at sticking to schedules. Some people will, have, will be struggling with ADHD like the previous caller. Um, and then I try to figure out, okay, what can we learn from people who have really mastered deadlines that will help all these people? And then some of it comes back to the insight I had dealing with, with the writers I was editing. Just if everyone had me standing next to them looking at my watch, they would get more things done. And is there a way to sort of to make that possible for more people? There is there a way to sort of create enforcement mechanisms um, for people who are trying to stick to deadlines? And um, one like bit of reporting that I did that I think is useful in this context was I went to the public theater in New York and just watch how they prepared a debut show, like a, a premiere. And that's such a very... Highly structured process from the rehearsals to the previews to you know final dress rehearsal. Like it's all basically a way to develop a show and put it on a stage, and you're always answering answering to someone at each step of the way. So at first it's you know the answering to the director. Eventually though, there's there are audiences there. Um, even before the actual opening night, but preview audiences who help you sort of get everything lined up and buttoned up before the actual sort of official opening of, of, of a play.
3: You know, what you're also getting at is you're, you're getting at how I think our understanding that we are part of a larger thing that people are relying on us and we're relying on them to meet deadlines can be a really important motivator.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this came up also in, in writing the book itself. I, I made sure to build in, um, so it sounds a little bit like, you know, pre-commitment. I, I basically told both my wife and my agent that I would give them a full draft of the book a month before it was due to my publisher. And, you know, that helped me meet my publisher's deadline, but it also gave me that extra month to sort of work on the book based on their feedback. And uh, that was hugely valuable.
3: We're talking with Christopher Cox. His book is The Deadline Effect. We're also talking with Dr. Laura Park, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology at the State University of New York at Buffalo. And your listeners are with us sharing your stories at 866-733-6786. But I'd like to bring Jenny O'Dell into the conversation. Jenny O'Dell is author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Jenny O'Dell, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here.
3: So I want to pivot just a little bit because one of the things that I was struck by that you have been thinking and talking about is that maybe we have like a cultural overemphasis on deadlines and productivity and and you're concerned about us having these things potentially for the wrong reasons. And so... Um, In How to Do Nothing, your book from before, you do talk a bit about the cultural importance we place on making use of our time and that uh, we should get as much done in the time that we have. But I'm wondering if you have kind of looked at why we feel this way.
2: (laughs) Right. I mean, I think something that's been fascinating to me personally, so I am on a very big deadline right now. Actually, I'm writing a second book (laughs) and ironically, it's a lot of it is about time management. Um, (laughs) I've been sort of like morbidly fascinated with how a lot of even seemingly pedestrian, you know, uh, commercial time management book books, um, kind of boil down to like fear of mortality or like fear of mortality is kind of like the, the motivator under, or it's, you could read between the lines. Right. Um, because, you know, it's like if you're sitting there thinking, you know, what's the best use of my time? And then that kind of turns into like, what do I want to accomplish in my life? And then it's like, what's the meaning of comp- accomplishing anything in my life? Cause eventually I'm, I won't be alive, you know? And it's like, so you, it kind of like pushes you up against these existential questions. Um, and I think that there's some irony in the fact that actually getting really, um, like really, really obsessed with deadlines can almost help you avoid those questions in, in a weird way. Um, and I think, I mean, I'm also just thinking about, I mean, I've loved this conversation so much and it was making me think about how actually, I think How to Do Nothing, the book came out of procrastination. I, I don't wanna say that I'm pro procrastination and I'll, I'm also not anti-deadline, but I do remember that in 2016, um, I, I had a lot of work. Um, I was teaching full-time and I was also, you know, doing various, you know, freelance art writing type things. And I would just, I would just not do them sometimes. And I would just go to this Rose garden, which is, you know, if you've read the book, you know, largely centers around this Rose garden, that's five minutes from my apartment. And that really felt like procrastination at the time. And I would even, I have journals where I'm like, I, you know, I really need to get back home. I need to answer my emails. I need, you know, I'm procrastinating right now. And then it turned out that it wasn't really procrastinating. It was just, I wasn't, I, I was I was not going in the right direction. I was—it's like my mind was trying to have some sort of like higher-level realization about like everything that I'm doing and the way that I've been looking at my time is wrong. Um, and so it was, I think my what I saw as procrastination at the time was actually me just kind of drifting toward the things that you know ultimately ended up in how to do nothing, which was a lot of work to, to write that book, right? But it's—it's it's, there was this kind of like moment of uncertainty and doubt and seeming procrastination that led to that
3: yeah and it it led to that yes and at the same time it sounds like you were able to see the value of the time that you were spending that you initially <laughs> viewed as procrastination um i want to go to caller guillermo in san leandro hi guillermo
1: hi uh thank you for taking my phone call Nina. hey um so what i learned from last year about deadlines I'm a landscape designer and a contractor and sometimes i am behind my before the pandemic, I was like, has to get it done, has to get it done. And I am one-man symphony, so I have to push everything through. And what I realized last year, the deadlines are things that we create for feel ourselves well and feel, you know, we're be, be, be busy and useful and we make it a good. And you know, we're in this world that everything has to be fast, 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 fast. And what I, le- what I learned last year from the pandemic, they're not worth it.
7: Mm.
1: <laughs> what is worth it? What, what do you have to kill yourself a day before if your life is too short to enjoy it, to say hi to the people that you really love, those who, who, those who you want to see in your life, and you know, your work and your deadlines always are there. But the ones that you love, the ones that you care about it, if you are not pay attention to life, you're never going to see it again and you're never going to uh, have the opportunity to say, I love you. Mm, so well, for yeah. me, that line here has changed completely from what it used to be.
3: Well, Guillermo, thanks for sharing that. And I feel like that's a really good... Um... It's a really good one for you, Jenny O'Dell, because in many ways, what Guillermo is saying is underscoring what you were saying about our sense of death, um, also just the finite sense of life, right, that we have a finite amount of time on this earth and how to really try to put deadlines in context. Um, I wonder if you have any reactions to what Guillermo was saying just then.
2: Yeah, um, I I think, you know, that makes me think of deadlines as sort of having almost like a gravitational force around them or something right where it's like i think you know seeing them in context it's like a deadline is a tool right whether it's something that helps you get something done or it's a social agreement with you know other people that you're working together with um but then it's like if you get sort of too too in the weeds with it it sort of starts to take over and you maybe lose that greater perspective of like why Like, who set this deadline? What is it for? I mean, it's a little bit related to the question that I ask in my book, which is when we say productive, productive of what, for whom and why.
3: Well, Dan writes, as a former work colleague used to say, if you put off until the last minute, it only takes a minute. (laughs) We're talking about deadlines with my guest Jenny O'Dell, Dr. Laura Park, and Christopher Cox. And you, our listeners, are welcome to join in. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can call us, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Coming up Monday on Forum, 63% of Californians are now vaccinated against COVID-19, far higher than the national rate. But in many parts of the state, health officials are struggling with how to convince those who are reluctant. We'll look at efforts in Fresno County, where less than half of residents have received a shot. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org slash forum. For the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at kqedforum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about deadlines and why they trigger such a range of emotions and reactions. We're joined by Christopher Cox, a journalist and author of the book, The Deadline Effect, How to Work Like It's the Last Minute Before the Last Minute. Dr. Laura Park is with us, associate professor at the Department of Psychology at the State University of New York at Buffalo. And Jenny O'Dell is with us, author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And you, our listeners, are also here. Let me go to Peter in Florida. Hi, Peter.
8: Wonderful. Are you ready? Yeah. Uh,
7: okay. Ready for what? <laughs>
8: when, when, when I heard when I heard uh, deadline poet, I, I it went through my mind like I love the deadline poet because I've done that before. I write limericks on a deadline.
3: Oh my gosh!
8: And you can you can fondle around forever, but the rules are very clear. It's like da 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 da, and you get the person's name, and then you go. I go through the alphabet. Okay, what rhymes with th- what rhymes with Nina? Okay, Katrina and subpoena. <laughs> you know, and then I'm like, quick, weave it together. And so I, I came up with something real quick. Are you oh ready? Oh my God! All right. I mean, I, I tried to call right away, so so you'd know I'm telling the truth. Okay. Let's, let's hear it. There once was a DJ named Nina. Could weather a storm like Katrina? on k q e d she suits to a t out of love, never under subpoena <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: thank you for that and i am
8: I'm so impressed that uh, the deadline
3: helped you make that happen,
8: Yeah, yeah, because you have these words, it's like, okay, I got this, i got yeah, this yeah, I got yeah. and you know. Pattern. and I, on k q e d she suits to a t i mean you just your mind goes through it, and it's like quick, 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 it's like i i've I've made up poems on on the subway, and it's like for somebody it's like i got to make this poem up for this person i just met sitting next to me and it's like you know we're going to get off you know in a few stations so it was like quick you know the the, one thing was a woman yolanda who boasted the wealth of jane fonda once cruising through texas she drove a new lexus now can't be caught dead in a honda Peter, you know, our
3: yeah. uh, deadline poet. Thank you, Peter, for giving me Often an experience. That, yeah, you that, want to uh, limit yourself. I have, yeah, that I have never had before. And actually, um, Karen writes something similar related to writing. Karen writes, Trouble and anxiety with deadlines is all about procrastination. The solution, set a timer for a half hour and take baby steps or small tasks toward the goal, then do it again. Takes the stress out of getting started as a professional travel writer. I've wrangled deadlines for years This method works and uh, Najva writes, I'm a PhD student and I definitely have a hard time starting a task that I'm confused about because I fear the way my advisor might respond. And we also have a comment from Kathy who writes, interesting how not genetic the attitude about deadlines can be. My brother is the biggest procrastinator I know, pushing deadlines to the last second or as a suggestion, whereas I make my checklist, time manage and prioritize, completely based on deadlines and timed goals. We both manage to succeed academically, professionally, and personally, but it's proven true our whole lives. And we're in our 30s now. So one thing, Jenny O'Dell, um, that I know you've looked at is – if we have mastered this ability to be efficient, if we have mastered this ability to create some spare time for ourselves, that we try to fill it <laughs> as opposed to enjoying it. Can you talk a little bit about what you've discovered and, and where that impulse might come from?
2: I mean, I think it, it connects a little bit to, to what we were talking about earlier in terms of just um, needing to appear busy, the sort of cultural value of that. Um, I think that you know, especially in the U S there's just a lot of discomfort with the, the idea of sort of um, you know, I want to say sitting idle, but even that just gives you some sense of how much, I think a lot of our ideas of work and productivity still come from like, almost like an industrial mindset of what, what work is. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, I find it interesting, for example, like my work is you know i i'm writing um and so i do a lot of things that you know don't quote unquote look like work or you know like i was saying earlier i was i was sort of maybe supposedly procrastinating but it was actually something else and when i have those moments i'm like who is this outside person that i'm imagining doesn't think what i'm doing looks like work um and it's really just this like personification of what we what we you know have come to expect you know you you come to expect uh you tell someone you're, I'm not doing anything today. Or, uh, if someone says like, what have you been doing lately? You know, or what have you made or produced lately? And you're like, nothing, um, that's, (laughs) you know, you're going to get some resistance to that. So, I mean, I think some of it is, uh, it's, it's a little bit hard to disentangle, right? Like some of it, I think it's just a cultural thing. And some of it is also just, even if you're not in a, you individually are not in a precarious situation. I think you're, a lot of us are surrounded by people in precarious situations. You know, I know many artists um, and writers and people who are sort of in these insecure positions where it's hard to say, like, if a weekend doesn't really seem like a weekend to them, is that because we have values about needing something to show for our time? Or is that because they feel insecure about their future? And it's like both, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's important to take those both into account.
3: Well, Diane tweets a very simple question, which I'll actually ask all of our guests to weigh in on. But Jenny O'Dell, Diane tweets, what can we do if we feel overwhelmed by too many deadlines? I'm wondering if you have managed to find sort of that sweet spot, <laughs> like a way to strike a middle ground with regard to to deadlines and not getting overwhelmed by them, um, or, or also like like figuring out with other people what, what a reasonable deadline really is.
2: <laughs> I mean, I can give you an example from my life right now, which is I, like I said, I have this one sort of big overarching deadline that I intend to keep because, or to meet, because that's a deadline to give something to my editor. And so I want, you know, I want her to have enough time. And I, you know, I feel obligated in that sense, but because it's been such a long time. I remember when I started out, it was like, okay, well, I'm going to set these mini deadlines for myself, you know, chapter deadlines to just make myself feel better about this whole process. And then I missed all of them. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then I was like, you know, it's fine. Like I was sort of like beating myself up about it. And I was like, that is just not like, I know I'm going to meet the big deadline. Like it's just mm. other ones. Like, I mean, that was a nice idea, but it just like, it didn't work out. And there's, you know, that's just not how the process happened. And then at the same time, I also noticed that um, every time I would have a conversation with a friend about what I was working on, that that kind of actually functioned like the the soft opening, which comes up in, in the art, the New Yorker article. And I think Christopher Cox, you also talk about like um, this idea of the, you know, the re- almost like the rehearsal, right? And I don't, I didn't initially think of these conversations that way, but I did find that when you have to tell someone about what you're working on you you have to distill it it can't yes. be this pile of references and books like you have to make it understandable to someone and we also everybody intuitively knows how to tell a story and how to how to like you know say something to someone in a way that hopefully makes sense. that's just an intuitive skill that we have And so I found those conversations actually you know I don't want to compare I don't want to call them deadlines but I think that they're just kind of serving um, a similar function to me and they're much friendlier than these kind of like punitive, deadlines that I was trying to impose on myself.
3: Christopher Cox, what what do you think of when Diane asks, what can we do if we feel overwhelmed by too many deadlines? What's a tip you have?
4: Well, um, I guess part of it is just uh, figuring out if everything that you think you have to do is something you really have to do. Um, you know, there's some things that you have to do to survive and some things you have to do to make yourself happy. And then maybe everything that doesn't fall into one of those two categories you should uh, you should eliminate. Um, How do you sort those priorities, though? Well, I think it's just a matter of being deliberate about it. Sometimes we allow ourselves to make to-do lists and just sort of let that list build up longer and longer without stopping to reassess it and sort of think, okay, is this actually important to me? Or is this just something that I'm fixated on because I've written it down somewhere or I have some sense that I need to do it? And, and this, like... Is why I think that I I love Jenny's book, and I feel like the the two ideas are not in conflict. Like, if what she's doing when she's writing um, is spending time and thinking about it, and that's productive time or creative time, or if she basically if she does not feel bad while she's doing that, then I wouldn't even consider it uh, procrastination. Mm. In the book, you know, I go to nine different workplaces and the thing that unites them all they're all good at deadlines and they're all happy they're all like doing what they want to do in a team or alone and they're not suffering from this anxiety of like should i be doing something should i be worried that i'm not being productive enough they're sort of in the thick of it they're in you know this state of almost flow as they are, are pursuing their goals
3: and dr laura park From your perspective, if someone is feeling overwhelmed by too many deadlines, what is
5: either operating there or what advice do you have? So I think when people hear the word deadline, they coil and they often feel a sense of dread. But part of it, you know, from the perspective of motivation is that people don't want to feel imposed upon. They don't want to feel pressured, but there's a continuum of motivation, so on the one hand there's extrinsic motivation where you're doing things because of external rewards threats or punishments but on the other end is you're doing something because you're intrinsically motivated so what jenny was talking about she just loved walking you know and did walking in the rose garden and watching the birds and and just being totally immersed in that activity which might be similar to what psychologists talk about these flow experiences where you kind of lose sense of time So if there's a way to push yourself or others so that people are not feeling controlled and pressured by these external deadlines, it could be things like generating your own deadlines, which for some people might work, but not for others, but also connecting those things that you're doing um, to your basic psychological needs. Is what I'm doing connected to feeling competent, a sense of autonomy, like you freely are choosing to do this thing and feeling a sense of connection with others. A lot of times we avoid doing things because we don't feel like we're having a choice or we don't feel competent or we don't feel connected to others. So in my uh, lab group for example, we have regular meetings even through covid through zoom where we create these, you know, microcultures of collaboration and we're constantly having members of the lab talk about their research ideas, get feedback and so It forces them to be in a situation where they have to share, but it's not this performance uh, evaluation type of setting where people are dreading, but it's more of an open conversation and seeing what they need help and support with to eventually help them to produce a product. Same with writing a dissertation, very overwhelming, daunting task, but in addition to breaking up the task into smaller pieces, creating that social connection and that accountability, and support is really key to helping people succeed at any goal. Well, Kathy writes,
3: deadlines are important and regular habits are important, but I've learned recently that even if I'm not actively crossing things off of my to-do list, I am still Evaluating, planning ahead, preparing, assessing, listening and all those things that allow me to make better decisions. Moms especially do this all the time, making sure that their choices align with everyone's needs and changing priorities on the fly. Maybe you can't see it. But it is very productive and worthwhile reminds me what you were saying jenny odell about conversations that you have with people that sort of soft open again we're talking with jenny odell author of how to do nothing resisting the attention economy dr laura park associate professor at the university state university of new york at buffalo and christopher cox journalist and author of the book the deadline effect and you're listening to forum i'm mina kim let me go to rick in palo alto hi rick
8: hi can you hear me i can Yeah, so I think the Harvard Business Review, uh, I'm a management consultant, mentioned that sometimes the best executives, uh, the best decision making is done uh, at the very end when you've gathered the most information. And I found in my career that sometimes even just like, I'm going to sleep on this. I can't make this decision. And in the morning, I often have an epiphany like, oh, that's what I need to do. And I'm glad I didn't make the decision right away. And that's the kind of thing I, I was wondering what your panel thought about that.
3: Hmm. Anyone have a reaction to what Rick was saying? Maybe Christopher Cox?
8: Yeah. I mean,
4: it it sounds like the deadline effect itself is this, this tendency to delay uh, decisions and agreements to the last minute. Uh, It's all, I mean, it's good. Obviously it's powerful uh, to have that motivation of the clock ticking down to zero, uh, but there are going to be moments when that's not ideal, whether it, you know, like a term paper, finish it after an overnighter might be sloppy. So you sort of have to balance the power provided by that ticking clock with the the need to you know do work that you're proud of, work that is high quality. Um, and you know that's that's sort of what the book is all about is trying to balance those two things.
3: Well, Ruth writes while listening to your program, I decided to start and actually started a project I have been procrastinating about. Jenny O'Dell, I'm wondering if the pandemic um, has made you think about or think differently about time management, or even about the book that you've been working on. Looking at that,
2: yeah, definitely. I think that um, I mean, so much of this depends on your position and and sort of like the work that you do and and privilege right. and all your of that. But I, yeah, I do think that for some people, you know, for people who are working from home, there. It, and you know, that includes me, there was kind of this like strange um, experience of like all time kind of starting to seem the same. Um, Like, you know, you're very cut off from like, you know, social rhythms or just kind of, you know, commutes, although I would say that that's a plus, but you know, like these kind of things, temporal things that would structure your life. And so things about time and how you spend your time start to seem really arbitrary. Um, And then at the same time, all work Kind of threatens to seem or sorry all time <laughs> threatens to seem like work time because it's just this kind of like empty time as an empty container that's stretching out for the whole day um so i think that that um for me writing this book right now was almost i mean it was a difficult but valuable experience in terms of contrasting that with other senses of time like ecological time and geological time. I noticed that a lot of people got into birding during the pandemic um, because they were maybe, you know, uh, stuck in one spot and sort of uh, witnessing bird migrations and things like this and other indicators of time. Um, so and that's something that I've been really interested in. But but the other thing I think the pandemic made me think about a lot with, you know, my last book was the difference between people who have temporal autonomy and people who don't. So if you have someone like me who's busy, a lot of the reasons I was busy at the time that I wrote that book were um, culturally dictated, um, like ideas about needing to appear productive, meritocracy, things like that, um, filling up my own schedule versus someone who's uh, who has very little temporal autonomy because their schedule is being dictated by an employer, several mm-hmm. employers, uh, maybe having you know, children, uh, living paycheck to paycheck, right? Like that's a very different experience of time um, and time pressure than the one that I'm having. And so I feel like it's a really, that, that's a distinction that I find increasingly important to make and I'm really trying to make in this current book.
3: Dr. Park, do you think that we culturally have a healthy relationship with time and with deadlines and that the pandemic, you know, will help that along? Or or where do you think the lessons of the pandemic with regard to, I mean, I'm thinking about Guillermo's comment earlier. Um, where, where do you think they'll take us and what, what do we need as a society?
5: Yeah, I think the the pandemic really brought to the forefront, a lot of issues in, you know, our modern society. And one of them is how important our social relationships are. What Guillermo was saying of how COVID really brought to the forefront of how important our family relationships are and how we miss our friends and, and those close relationships. Um, So some research shows, for example, that when you have people imagine that they're alone later in life, if you make them feel socially excluded, they engage in more uh, procrastination and unhealthy behaviors. And so I think there are some ways to tackle procrastination that is deeper in terms of asking questions of what are you unclear about? What are you afraid of? And if you're feeling bored or just avoiding the task, keep asking the questions of why. And maybe that'll prompt you to abandon that task, look for something else, or talk to your boss or employer about ways to change up the task.
3: Yeah. But-, but- Basically, remember what's important. Dr. Park, Christopher Cox, Jenny O'Dell, thanks so much for being on today. Thanks to uh, Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. Form is also produced by Ariana Prail, Tina Lauerberg, Blanca Torres and Grace One, Susan Britton, Judy Campbell, Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin and Brendan Willard are our engineers. Interns Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Eng. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks so much for listening.
7: Russia.